kids get wiggly and they need to, you feel like they need to be somewhere. They, you can go downstairs to the overflow room. There's an overflow projector there and kids can be a little more wiggly there. But uh, don't worry, it doesn't bother me. Kids can be as wiggly as they want. I just keep on preaching. So just deal with that as how you see fit. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 8 is where we're studying today. Let me read the text for you. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Whew, that's a difficult passage, huh? It's really, really challenging. Uh, Jesus' words here are uh, direct. They are forceful. They are in, in my face, in our faces. Uh, when I was thinking about how to preach this sermon, I was thinking, this is going to be a really challenging sermon to preach. You, you know, I think I understand now how uh, a doctor must feel who has to sit down with a patient and deliver some really bad medical news. Uh, except in this case, the news that Jesus has to bring us is far, far more serious than the worst kind of cancer. Um, and so, uh, we look at Jesus' words here. They're very direct. They're very straightforward. This is a very straight-shooting kind of text. Uh, and I, I feel compelled to, to deliver it in a straightforward kind of way. So, if you're looking for the politically correct sermon, uh, you probably came to the wrong church this morning. This is a very straightforward text. But you know... If I was sick, I would want a doctor to be very straightforward with me. I wouldn't want a doctor to beat around the bush and him and haw. It's like, just let me know what it is and what I have to do. That's what I would want from my physician. And so Jesus, the great physician, uh, gives us a little straight talk this morning. But it's not without hope. So what is it uh, that is so bad here? What is it that's so difficult? And just to put it simply, it's this. Jesus is going to tell us that we are all, all of us, guilty before God. We are all sinners. All of us have broken God's laws in so many ways. And therefore, we live under the judgment of God, from which there is no escape. 
That's it. <laughs> Let's look at the text. Chapter 13, verse 1. He says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? So the whole kind of uh, the presenting issue here is the question of God's judgment. How does it work? And when you see somebody undergoing a great tragedy, does that indicate that the person is a great sinner? That if someone is really suffering in some terrible way, that must mean they did something really bad. And so these, someone at the sermon, Jesus is preaching along here and somebody interrupts and says, hey, what about those Galileans who were killed? Uh, you know, were they worse? What did they do wrong? And we don't know what this story is. Apparently there were some Galileans, that's people from the northern part of Israel, uh, and they were apparently offering some sacrifice, which uh, scholars suggest may have been the Passover sacrifice, because that's the only time that Jewish laity were able to sacrifice their own lamb. But apparently Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea, you remember him from Jesus' crucifixion, Pontius Pilate had killed some of them. Now, we don't know if the, where this story comes from. We, it's not corroborated in any external historical uh, stories that we have, but we do know that it completely comports with who Pilate was. Because everything we know from Pilate, about Pilate from Jewish history, is that he was a brutal, brutal governor. He had no uh, concern whatsoever for Jewish religious sensibilities. On a number of occasions, he violently oppressed the Jews and put down demonstrations and things like that. So this idea of Pilate killing some people who were sacrificing, I mean... No problem believing this. This is the kind of person Pilate was. But anyway, the point is, therefore, was it because those people had done something really wrong that they suffered this great tragedy? Jesus takes the point even further in verse 4. He brings up another example. Uh, He says, Or uh, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than others living in Jerusalem? So here, uh, somewhere in Jerusalem... There was a tower in Siloam. We don't know what the tower was. There is a pool in Siloam. We know that's a real location. So apparently there was some tower there. Maybe guys were working on it. Maybe there was scaffolding and the whole thing fell apart. But for whatever reason, this tower fell. 18 people killed. Um, It made me think about here in Boston when that lady was driving through the tunnel and out of the blue, it fell on her and, and she was killed. And we hear about tragedies like that. And so Jesus asked the question again. Do you think they were more guilty than others living in Jerusalem? Is it because really bad things happen, when bad things happen to people, does that indicate that they were really extra bad people, so they got a really extra bad punishment, that God saw them and said, wow, that person's out of control, hits the smite button on his computer, and, you know, because they were really bad, but you're not so bad, and that's why that hasn't happened to you. And, you know, before we kind of laugh at this question, this line of reasoning, uh, which was very common back then. I think of John chapter 9 where the disciples see this blind person and they say, Jesus, is that guy blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Of course, Jesus said, well, neither. Uh, As he says here, he denies that line of reasoning. Or I think of Job's friends. Remember Job? He's in all this terrible suffering and Job's friends come around him, great friends, and they say, Job, you know, we all know why you're suffering like this. It's because you've got some dirty little secret that no one else knows about that you need to confess, Job. That's why you're suffering, because that's why you're being punished. And I was thinking, you know, we think like this sometimes. Maybe not all the time, but occasionally. Like, think of somebody that you really, let's be honest, someone you really hate. Somebody you dislike greatly. Somebody who, when you see them, you're like, oh, or you see them on TV, and you're like, oh, you know, 
I can't believe that person. And then when you hear about something bad happening to that person, if you're honest, there's a part of you that's like, huh, serves them right. They finally got what they deserved. So we have this kind of reasoning. Or maybe you take the same reasoning and you've applied it to yourself before. Maybe you've gone through a season in your life when your life was like a country music song. (laughs) I lost my dog, I lost my car, I lost my girl, I lost my job, I lost everything. And and you had one of those sort of country music seasons. Uh, And what is it that you thought? Am I being punished? You thought that about yourself. You wondered, you know, maybe a part of you. Even irreligious people will say, like, somebody up there doesn't like me. It's just this kind of idea that if terrible things are happening to us, it must be because we've done some terrible offense. And if bad things happen to other people that are really bad, it's like, well, maybe they they deserved it, and thank goodness I don't. Uh, But Jesus just totally rebukes all that. He rejects it. Verse 2, verse 3, He says, I tell you, no, Verse 5, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So in other words, what Christ is saying is that we were all guilty. That every one of us, when measured against the standard of God's justice, when measured against what we deserve from God, we are all in the category of sinful. We are all in the category of law-breaking. We all deserve the judgment of God in some way. We are underneath his curse, <clears throat> without exception. All of us. That's the bad news. He says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. So when we see terrible things happen to people, we shouldn't look at them and say, wow, I wonder what they did. We should say, wow, how is it that I am still alive? <laughs> Why am I still here? You know, what, what happened? You know, that's right, God is a holy God and I have to think about that for my own life. We should look at ourselves rather than looking at others with disdain. Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will perish. Now, when I see perish there, I think that Jesus is talking about more than just physical death. Uh, He's talking about eternal death because I was thinking, if I repent of my sins and believe in Jesus, does that mean I never die? No, I'm going to die and I'll be raised someday, but I am going to die. So perish there must have a, a longer sense. It must be an eternal sense of the eternal judgment of God in the fires of hell, God's uh, eschatological judgment upon the world. And so there we are. We're in danger of the judgment of God. That's the basic teaching here. And uh, you see, God is a holy God. That's the thing. Our God is holy. He is righteous. He is a judge. He hates sin. All sin is a direct affront against the judgment of God. If you trace any sin back to its uh, genesis, it it always is some rejection of God and His glory. And this is a difficult thing to know about God because I think we'd rather think of God as pure love, right? In fact, if you ask people today about God, like what's God like, people say, well, He's a God of love. The God I believe in is a God of tolerance. The God I believe in is a God of acceptance. He would never judge anybody. He would never throw anybody in hell, certainly. Except, well, maybe some really, really bad people. But, you know, for the most part, he wouldn't. He's a loving God. He's kind of a cosmic, you know, fuzzball of positive energy or something. And, and he's there for everybody. And so today we want heaven without hell. We want forgiveness without repentance. We want a gospel without a cross. 
We want a God of love and acceptance, but not a God of holiness and justice. But you know, I was thinking about it. What kind of God would God be if he was not a God of justice? If God did not hate sin, you know, that's another way to look at it. We have a hard time thinking of God as a judge, but what if God never judged? What if his answer to everything was group hug? You know, so when a suicide bomber kills innocent people in a marketplace, what if God was like, it's okay, I mean, let's just all get along, a group hug, it's okay. You know. What if God responded to child molestation and abuse with, oh, come on, don't make such a big deal, it's, not a big deal. it's okay, let's all love each other, let's just love, love, love. What kind of God would that be if there was no righteousness and holiness? Have you ever talked to a woman? I have. Have you ever talked to a woman who's recently discovered that her husband was unfaithful? You know, it's true. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. (laughs) She's homicidal. And you know, she should be. She shouldn't just be like, oh, it's okay. She should be very angry. She should be enraged. She should be almost losing her mind because something very sacred has been violated. How much more so the sanctity of God's character and His purity. And we violate that with our sins. How much more so should God be a judge? So if we can understand judgment at a human level, how much more so for God? The difference, of course, is, and this is where I'm convicted, is that God's justice and holiness is global and comprehensive, whereas mine is selective. (laughs) God's justice is complete. It's a complete... Package. It's uh, total and it's consistent. And mine is sort of selective and it fits my needs. In other words, mine is like them but not me. Yeah, give those bad people justice. Oh, and that person justice. But never myself. And I think that's exactly the sentiment that Jesus is trying to get at in this story. Is all the people, they want to talk philosophy about those people that got killed by Pilate. And they want to muse philosophically. And Jesus is like, this isn't some philosophical Rubik's Cube to solve. This is about you and me. We are guilty. And so Jesus wants to turn it back to us. You know, we hear about Kenneth Lay, Enron, money stolen... We say, oh, what a greedy robber baron. And then he dies of a heart attack suddenly. I mean, did you, honestly, did you think, well, maybe, you know, there's someone upstairs watching this whole thing? Huh? Maybe you did. I don't know. But my point is, I'm not willing with the same kind of scrutiny to look at myself and think perhaps God is angry at my greed. Perhaps God is sickened by my materialistic Coma, my addiction to pleasure. Uh, we look at Paris Hilton and her escapades and we think, ay, ay, what is Hollywood pumping out these days? All of this moral filth. But am I willing to look at my own heart and to see, you know, do I have a wandering eye? What about the thoughts that go through my mind? We think about suicide bombers and we can't even comprehend them. They're filled with such hatred I mean, I don't care what your religion is. I don't care what your philosophy is, how you get there. If you're blowing yourself up to kill other people, you have to be saturated with anger and hatred. It has to be, just at the core of you. Just a a violence in your heart. And we say, oh, and rightly so. It's terrible. It's, It's horrific. But do I bring the same light of God's law to shine upon my heart to see the anger that's within me, the violent 
comments and violent gestures and threatening postures I take toward my family? Do I see the bitterness I have in my heart toward whoever? In-laws, outlaws, exes, spouses, stepchildren. Do I look at that inside my soul, which is the same stuff that produces violence? I mean, it's not a different kind of thing. It's just maybe we're able to, by God's grace, suppress it a little more. And so, every time as a parent I scold my children for something, I know I've done the same thing in some way or another. I do the same things I complain about my children doing, or have done, or will do at one point. And so, we all stand guilty. We all stand under the judgment of God. We are all uh, doomed for judgment apart from Jesus Christ. That's the difficult news of this text. I don't know any other way to get around it or you know, soft sell it to myself or to you. Then that raises a question, of course, which is, well, if that's true, then why am I still here? (laughs) If I truly have broken God's laws in so many ways, and he is a holy judge who hates sin, then why am I still breathing? Um, Why hasn't the Tower of Siloam fallen on me? Why hasn't my blood been mixed with the sacrifices? And we get this parable, verse 6. It says, Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, He went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So the question is, why is the fig tree still standing? Is it because this is a really great fig tree? Is it a better plant than the other plants in the vineyard? Is it because all those other plants that died, they were bad plants, but this is a really good plant? No. What is it then that keeps the fig tree alive? And from what I can tell in the story, it's just the voluntary clemency of the owner. It's simply that the owner, in his own good reason, has chosen not yet to wipe it out. And, you know, the story kind of ends ambiguously, doesn't it? I don't know how it ends. He's, you know, the... the the gardener says, well, listen, sir, here's the plan. You never really hear the owner's response. So the story kind of, it leaves you hanging a little bit. Like, how's this going to be resolved? And I think that's the point, is to put it on us and say, how is this going to be resolved? And so that's why the fig tree is there, because of the clemency of the, the owner. And then we ask the question of ourselves, why am I still here? And the, answer, the only answer I can find It's not because I'm better than other people or I'm a pastor or I went to seminary or I go to church every Sunday. The only reason I can find that I'm still here apart from Christ is the clemency and voluntary mercy of an incensed holy God. That God who is holy and righteous for some reason has chosen yet to spare me one more day. Our God is a consuming fire, the Scriptures tells us. He is a God of love, yes, but He's also a God of purity. He's burning in His love, but He's also burning in His justice. And the only thing that separates me from the holiness of God is God's self-restraint. I am naked before God. I am exposed completely. And there's nothing I have that can extinguish His justice. There's nothing I have to buy Him off with or bribe the judge. Or There's no loopholes in this system. It's not like our justice system where people get off the hook all the time. There is no getting off the hook. And there's nothing between me and God except His own, for whatever reason, choice to temporarily 
withhold His justice. The sword of divine justice is raised. His forearm is tensed. His sights are on me. And the only thing that keeps Him from striking my soul forever is His own mercy holding Him back temporarily. And in the meantime, people are fertilizing you. (laughs) People are praying for you. Maybe that's why you're still here. Because you have some people who love you who are saying, God... Please give him another day. Give her another week. Lord, help them to see you, Jesus. And they're praying for you. You have gardeners who are fertilizing you. And still, you're not bearing any fruit. You're not repenting and turning to Christ. You know, how much more, how much longer is the owner going to wait? I don't know, but it's not forever. I know that. Sir, said the man, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. One more year. One more year. And so that's what we have we have today. I don't know about tomorrow, but I know God's given us today. He's given us now. We have this opportunity before us to turn to Christ. And Jesus, the good physician, has not only in very blunt language told us our situation, but praise God, He's also shown us the cure. He's also shown us what we must do. He's not just all bad news, but here's the good news. Verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent you too will perish. And again in verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. So this text was written for me because he had to repeat himself. That's how I know it was written for me. I needed to hear this twice to get it. Repentance is the only response that we have that will access us the mercy and forgiveness of God. Um, what is repentance? Maybe we should just talk about that concept really quickly. Uh, you probably understand it, but just you know, for the sake of fully thinking about it. The basic idea of biblical repentance, one word, is to turn. It's just turning. If you want to think of repentance, just think of a person walking one way and then saying, whoa, and turning around and walking the other way. That's repentance. And so it's an inward thing. Repentance is a move of the heart. It's something that happens inwardly where we turn away from sin and we turn toward Jesus. That's all it is. It's turning my back on sin and evil and it's turning toward Christ. And so it's an inward move, really. Uh, Repentance should produce a changed life, but that's different from repentance. That's the fruit of repentance. This is just kind of that change. And it has at least three components. Let me just tick them off quickly. I think repentance involves the mind. In other words, it changes our thinking. Instead of thinking, oh yeah, that's fine, everyone does it, what's the big deal? I, I now say no. I start seeing sin the way God sees it. I stop looking at the world through... Uh, the world's morality, and I start looking at the world through God's morality. And I start saying, that is wrong, that is evil, ooh. And I think more importantly, I stop justifying my sin. I stop rationalizing and saying, well, you know, of course I did that, because look, look at my circumstances. And, you know, if so-and-so hadn't done that to me, of course I wouldn't have responded this way. You know, we can always find a reason to put it on someone else. But when I really repent, I start saying, I've got to stop blaming my dysfunctional family from 50 years ago and realize it's me. Yeah, yeah, my, my family has affected me. Of course, that's all true. But we've made choices. I have responded sinfully to the sin of my family. Fine, put it that way. But it is sin, it is wrong, and it is an affront to God. As David says, against you and you only have I sinned, David says. And we need to come to that place. That's the mental part of repentance. But I think there's a second part of repentance. It's also emotional when we start to see sin for what it is, it should cause us to grieve. We should be heartbroken. We, we should, you know, 
cry. We should, you know, in times of repentance and past revivals that I read about, people were so overwhelmed with grief that they cried out audibly. They were broken because of their sins as God gave them an ability to see sin for what it was, which we so rarely have. And, and there was weeping over sin and there's grieving and it's like, oh, oh, what have I done? What have I become? And, and notice this, it's not just grieving over the consequences of sin. It's grieving over sin itself. You know, a little girl punches her brother. Mom and dad send her to the room. They say, no, you know, TV for you for a week. You're grounded. And the little girl cries and cries. What's she crying about? She could be crying about no TV for a week. <laughs> That's not repentance. That's just, I'm ticked off because, you know, I, I'm happy that I'm paying the consequences of what I did. Repentance is when you say, I hit my brother. Oh, oh. <laughs> you know, and we grieve over the sin itself. Which leads me to the third aspect of repentance, which is not only the mind and the heart, but I think it affects the will. True repentance, there's a yearning to change. The truly repentant person, it's not just enough to be sorry for your sin. You have to be sorry enough that you want to change really at any cost. You have to say, please let me change. I want to be different. I yearn to live a different life. I'm sickened by my depravity. And when I do that, and God is helping me see how I've lived against His laws my whole life, how in one way or another I've ticked off the Ten Commandments, broken them one by one. I've not loved God. I've not loved others. I want to change. But then here's the problem. We want to change, and we realize we can't. (laughs) That's the thing about repentance. It's kind of funny, isn't it? True repentance recognizes that we want to change, but at the same time recognizing we can't change on our own. We see that we need to change, that God commands us to change, but we can't change. And we're unable to because we're so caught in our depravity. And so we grieve even more. We say, oh no, I can't even change the way I need to change. I'm so messed up. I'm so far from God that even my attempts to change are going to get sabotaged by my sin. And so it's really despairing. And you're like, well, thanks, Pastor. That's really uplifting. Uh, you know, I'm totally, totally trapped here. No, you're not trapped. Because at that moment, when you've come to see and feel and yearn for change from your sin, and yet recognize that you are totally powerless to do it yourself, that is when you are ready for Jesus. Because that's when I can now turn to Christ and say, I need a Savior. I can't make it up to you, God. I can't work it out. I I can't change myself. I can't take some self-help program and pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I know it won't happen that way. And so in Jesus, unless you forgive me, unless you change my heart supernaturally, I am stuck and I am doomed. And when you cry out to Christ for His forgiveness and you throw your whole self at the cross for your salvation, you will be saved and you will be changed. Because that is what Christ does. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, give yourselves to Christ. Uh, you know, why do you want to stay apart from Christ any longer anyway? What? It doesn't make any sense. Aren't you tired of sin? Aren't you sick of what it's done to your life and to your family? Don't you yearn to know the God who made you and to know that He forgives you and that He embraces you as His child, that is all yours through Christ if you'll just repent. 
and cry out to Him for salvation. But short of that, nothing will help. I heard this really cool story, and I'll close with this story. Uh, it was about the governor of Texas in 1920. His name was Governor Neff. And he became the governor in 1920. And I guess Governor Neff went to a penitentiary one day to speak to the inmates, a lot of whom were life-termers. And, and uh, at the end of his talk to the inmates, he said, uh, okay, I'm going to hang around after this talk, and any inmates who want to come talk to me, I'll listen to what they have to say. And they can say anything they want to me, and I will keep it confidential. I'm not going to report anything. And so you can imagine... It's a pretty big crowd afterwards. They're all coming up to talk to him. And one by one, you know, I'm innocent, Governor. And you know, Governor, I was framed. And, and the, the judge, he didn't listen to this, and they forgot about that, and they wouldn't. You know, and all these reasons why they should be pardoned. And the Governor listened to him one by one, one by one. Until, as the story goes, a man came to him and said, Governor, I have to just tell you, I'm totally guilty of what I'm in here for. I... I did it, and I have been suffering justly for what I did. Uh, but, you know, I yearn to be free so that I might have another chance to live a different life. And, and that is what my heart's desire is. And if you would set me free, that is what I want to do. And you can guess, that is the man that the governor pardoned. And if we come to Christ with that simple humble, broken attitude, seeking His grace, that is when you will be free from the burden of your sins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for the gift, for the blessing of repentance. We pray, Lord, that You would enable us to see our sins the way You see them to grieve over our sins and to turn to Christ. Lord, I want to pray for everyone here who uh, knows You, Jesus, who loves You. We, We pray, Lord, that we as a church who know Christ would continue to flee from sin. Not, Lord, that we fear hell anymore because we know that Jesus is our Savior, but help us to have such a hatred of sin that we would constantly be uh, cleansed from things in our lives that are displeasing to You. Lord, help us to be a pure and holy church in love with You and so in love with You, Jesus, that we would never want anything to come between us. And Lord, I pray for um, those here who don't know You yet, Jesus. And this is a funny prayer, but I pray, Lord, that You would give them no rest, that You would pursue them, that You would torment them until they finally turn and see the loving God who has been chasing them, Lord. Would You woo them to Yourself through any circumstances whatsoever? Because, Lord, we don't know how long we have. And so I pray, God, give us another year. Give another year, Lord, that these who don't know You would, would repent and turn to Christ so that they might know the forgiveness and joy of what it means to live in a relationship with the Holy God. And so, Lord, we love You. Thank You for this text. Even though it's tough, we thank You, Lord, because the tough stuff seems to be the best stuff. And so, Lord, as we come now to the communion table, we pray that You would fill us as a church up with worship at the thought of the sacrifice You you paid on the cross so that we could be pardoned from the prison of our sin. And so, Lord, be with us now. Give us eyes to see the glory of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.